Good evening. You're listening to WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm Edward Simon Cruz, and this is WNUR News at 6. Tonight, the end of the Northwestern Geography Program, a look at 2000's Disney fashion, and another way to say the day after tomorrow. Those stories and more coming up. From Northwestern University, this is WNUR News at 6. The Northwestern Geography Program is closing shop at the end of the school year, but that doesn't mean the legend has to die with it. Reporter Gabby Shell takes a look back at the program over the years and discusses the future of geography at Northwestern. It's the Northwestern Geography Program has been the subject of mythic curiosity. Why is it inside of the Anthropology Department? How has one professor managed to propagate the entire program? Who are these chosen few geography majors? But the discourse will finally end this summer when the Geography Department closes its doors for good. Professor John Hudson, the chair of the Geography Department, has finally decided to retire. It's better to, uh, it's better to go while it's your decision, not when you're, <laughs> you're forced to. And uh, I've been thinking about it, and uh, this, this last one, I thought, well, this, would, this should be at 82. I, I've had the idea of retiring before, but I would put it off, and it's something you can't put off forever. Now in his 80s, Professor Hudson is looking forward to using his retirement to immerse himself in his interests and catch up on projects that have been sitting on the back burner. I have a book. I have not been able to get published, but I haven't given up on it. Uh, that would be a, a college-level book on geography of Illinois, and it's, it's a very old-fashioned kind of subject, but the book is, is there and probably needs some more work. So that's uh, that's one project that, that I have. I have a couple of... of uh, short pieces that I've promised people that I would write. I have no trouble uh, staying busy with stuff. Professor Hudson first came to Northwestern in 1971, back when geography had its own separate department. By 1986, he was one of two tenure geography professors left. It was no surprise to Hudson when Northwestern President Arnold Weber made the call to shut down the department. Since they were both tenured, Professor Michael Dacey and Professor Hudson were absorbed into the larger anthropology department. Not long after, Dacey founded the Mathematical Models and Social Science, or MMSS, department, leaving his days as geography professor behind. So it really just left me teaching geography. And I asked the dean, I asked Dean Weingartner, I said, well, we're not going to have a department, can we have a program? He said, yes, but it has to depend only on Hudson and Daisy, nothing else. With no funding coming from the university, Hudson was forced to make a choice. Lead the program by himself or say goodbye to Northwestern Geography. And for 37 years, I have been the program in geography. Despite being a one-man-run program, classes are usually pretty lively. Madeline Williams, a junior majoring in economics and geography, often found it hard to gauge the size of the program because so many students would take geography classes to fulfill distribution requirements, or simply for fun. 
although the department's really small because it's just one professor for everything Hudson. Um, and it's like in itself, because all the classes are always pretty full because you can like, two of them are natural science sisters. So a lot of people take that as like a natural science, the econ can have for econ and there's a lot of them can double count for like electives and other things. So honestly, like not that different. To keep the geography department running solo, Professor Hudson took on a higher workload. So I've always taught more. I've always taught five lecture courses a year, which is more than most professors teach. By taking on an extra class each quarter, Hudson made sure that there were enough course offerings for both a major and a minor in geography. A geography major was, uh, was cr uh, created a, an adjunct major. You have to major in something else. And over the years, there have been dozens of people got a geography major. And now this year, we finally got down the last two majors and one minor are finishing up. That's, that will be it. As one of the last two geography majors at Northwestern, William feels that the small size of the program has in some ways been a benefit, allowing her to create a deeper relationship with Professor Hudson than she might otherwise have. Like you get to know him after he's like, oh, hi, Madeline. He's like, he knows her, like he knows him from Switzerland. So it's like kind of like stay after class, talk a bit. So I would say like definitely, I mean, it's when you have a professor so many quarters. I asked Williams if there were any moments or classes that stuck out to her in her time with the geography department. I really liked, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but I think it's Chicago and its greater region or something like super similar to that, probably if I don't mind. I thought that was just cool because it's nice to get to know like where you are. So I think like, especially being a Northwestern student, I feel like kind of separated from Evanston a lot of the time. So it's nice just to get to learn more about like what like industries were originally here. How was like Chicago like founded? How was it created? Why did people move here? And like things kind of like that. And that was like nice to like feel more connected. Chicago and its greater region, or Geography 312, has been taught by Professor Hudson for years. In fact, it is the only class he is teaching this quarter. The class begins with the changes in physical geography in the Midwestern region and discusses the indigenous populations that originally lived in the area, along with the conditions of their displacement. After that, it moves on to the more modern geography of Chicago, changes in its layout, population growth, and industry. The course offerings in the geography department didn't always look like they do now. When I came, we taught mathematical models of this and that, everything that we could think of. It was very theoretical, very mathematical, and it was not, uh, it was not successful. As time went on, Hudson made the decision to shift the program away from the mathematical geography of the 70s and 80s to a more regional, historical look at the subject. quite a big shift, I might say about a 99% shift in the courses that we, that we offered from, the, from 1971 when I arrived to, until today. With all of the change in the geography department, and now the end of it, I was left wondering what place geography has at Northwestern and in higher education in general. I asked two of Northwestern's three last geographers what they thought the discipline had to offer. I definitely think like a lot of what we learn like is pretty valuable and I, I wouldn't want to like lose geography as a whole. And I'm like it's like it's like a really like expansive topic and I would I would have liked to see it grow. I feel like this could have been an opportunity to like bring in more like outside like instructors, like professors, things like that to like kind of grow the program. I think that the main thing that geography has to offer is totally obvious. It's just like history. Why, why not become familiar with who you are, why, why it rains, 
movies think just becoming better acquainted with the world you live in. And a lot of geography teaching is really addresses that uh, more than anything else. It's basic information. It's learning how to understand the environment, how to understand uh, the economy, try to understand why this happens and that happens on a worldwide basis. For WNUR News, I'm Gabby Shell. Wonder why your favorite Disney Channel star's outfits looked a little crazy? Dive into the vibrant world of 2000's Disney fashion with reporter Kara Totley, where colorful outfits weren't just style choices, but a part of a carefully crafted formula. The 2000's tweens fashion was marked with an abundance of color, mismatched print, fur, sequins, and lots and lots of layering. Even though some outfits may have been better than others, there was one particular studio that was pumping out some of the most iconic 2000s looks. That studio is none other than Disney. In the 2000s and early 10s, Disney had a variety of shows that gave us fashion icons like Hannah Montana, Lizzie McGuire, Raven Baxter, and London Tipton. Sometimes the fashion choices worked, and sometimes it didn't. I've definitely, you know, seen, like, clips from Shake It Up where I kind of cringe a bit. Um, but I also give myself praise because, you know, that's it was the trends of the time. That was Jessica Raplansky. Raplansky was the costume designer for multiple Disney Channel shows, including Shake It Up and Austin and Alley. The aesthetic I kind of developed on that show was very, like, layered, um, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but so we were layering a lot of different clothes. Like, so even if, like, one of the actors was wearing a crop top, they would have, like, another top, um, like a tank top underneath, but we made it in a way that looks like cool and part of the style. This aesthetic is so identifiable that people are now poking fun at the style on TikTok. Catherine Wagner, a former costume designer for Disney, who worked on some of their more popular shows, told Vogue about the importance of color in a show's wardrobe. At the time, live action shows were essentially competing with cartoons for the attention of children. Hence, Wagner chose to utilize brighter colors when styling Disney actors. But in a way, it worked. Disney Channel was at its peak popularity between 2010 and 2015, with shows like Wizards of Waverly Place, Jonas, Shake It Up, Hannah Montana, and many more. According to Statista, the channel averaged about 1.96 million viewers in 2014. Thus, the clothes became a part of a formula in crafting a Disney show. Disney was very, you know, they had very strict rules about what was appropriate to show for, for girls, or I mean, kids in general, but I feel like specifically girls. <laughs> and so, yes, we definitely had to be very mindful of, like, not showing too much midriff, making sure the skirts weren't too short, heels and all that. Which, in hindsight, makes sense. The bright and fun clothes match the mindset of a tween, picking out an outfit during that time. It was also an age-appropriate version of the trends happening in the women's fashion scene, such as the miniskirt, which explains the love for the jeans or the leggings under the skirts adding a bit of modesty to protect the young actors who at the time were working at ages ranging from 12 to 14. However, sticking to this formula doesn't allow for the actors' clothing to mature with them. Thus, at the age of 18, actors had to adhere to the same modesty standards that they had as a tween, especially since the outfit standards weren't constricted to their on-scene characters, but also to the actors' personal lives, highlighting another aspect that contributed to the standards of Disney. 
purity culture. By the 1990s, there is a large-scale cultural fear around sex. Um, and it was a couple of things. One, you have the HIV AIDS crisis. The other thing that was um, perceived as a problem in the 80s and 90s was teen pregnancy. And so both of those things together created a, um, uh, a real fear. That was Dr. Sarah Mosliner, faculty at Central Michigan University in the Department of Philosophy, Anthropology, and Religion. Dr. Mosliner has been studying evangelic purity culture for almost 15 years. The SBC started to threaten to boycott both Disney and ABC. They had millions of people who just, you know, stopped going to Disney and were like committed to boycotting because it was this family values issue. And especially Disney, which is supposed to be this family friendly place, right? They were changing the definition of family that the SBC was and other evangelical Christians and other conservative Christians were not willing to accept. The SPC stands for the Southern Baptist Convention, and at the time, they were gaining more power as Disney started to lose money. So Disney began to buckle. Disney, you know, shifted, was very much influenced by the SBC and purity culture, and under pressure, embraced this as a way to market their young stars. One of those marketing strategies was purity rings. Almost every Disney actor in the 2000s wore purity rings, and Disney was able to use their stars proclaiming their chastity as a way to create a new wave of profitable teen stars. Joe Jonas told James Corden during Carpool Karaoke, The next thing you know is the Jonas Brothers and their purity rings. And that was like what people ran with forever. That was a running joke. And we found the humor at sometimes, but of course we just kind of decided at one point, we're like, look, this is not who we are. Purity rings became a part of the Jonas Brothers' identity. Nick Jonas shed more light on his feelings about the way the media discussed the rings in an interview with Harper's Bazaar, saying, quote, The question should have been, is it appropriate for people to talk about a 16-year-old's sex life? It's absolutely not, and it wouldn't necessarily fly today, end quote. Going back to fashion, Disney's commitment to a vivid and playful wardrobe wasn't merely a strategic move to capture the audience's attention. It was intricately woven into the fabric of modesty standards. They incorporated layers and vibrant colors into the prevailing fashion of the time, as the primary trends of the 2000s were deemed too scandalous to align with Disney's family-friendly image. Replansky suggests a more individualistic approach to style, emphasizing the importance of personal comfort and aesthetic appeal person sticks to their like what works for them and their body and like what they are just drawn to aesthetically then their style will be good for wnr news i'm car totally When saying the day after tomorrow, many wonder if there's a simpler, one-word way. And as it turns out, there just might be. Here's Gabe Shumway with more. But I should be free on, you know, like, the day after tomorrow. Like, not, not tomorrow, but the day after. Uh, Sunday, yeah, yeah, Sunday. Each language has its own limitations, but something that has puzzled English speakers is the lack of a word for the day after tomorrow. While many languages can express this thought in a mere one word, there is no commonly regarded term for this in the English language. At least, not recently. There is a term called overmorrow, but this word has some disagreement among dictionary publishers. 
While the likes of the Oxford English Dictionary publish the term as an adjective and adverb, Dictionary.com claims it's a verb. Meanwhile, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary does not feature the term at all. But the word overmorrow is a direct translation of the German word übermorgen, a word ingrained into the German language. It's, it's used quite often in colloquial speech. Um, uh, people use it all the time. That's Rob Ryder, an assistant professor of instruction for Northwestern's German department. He added that there are other terms for specific time frames in the German language, such as the day before yesterday. It's uh, vorgestern. Yeah? It's the German, uh, it's a single German word. Vorgestern is just one word, which we, uh, which we need four words for in English. But how was the German language able to establish this terminology and implement it so often? First of all, you have to think about the German culture a little bit and how efficient they like to be all the time. <laughs> and I feel like sometimes um, the language itself reflects cult the culture and the people. These terms are often compound words, combining prefixes, suffixes, and often multiple words at a time. When asked about the source of this mass of compound words, he pointed to an unlikely source, famous authors, the Brothers Grimm. They also were very much interested in the German language and the growth of the German language. So um, there's, there's a dictionary online, anyone can access it, and, um, and it's massive. <laughs> so they don't not only give all the different options for ableugnen or all these other sort of combinations of uh, prefixes and verbs, but they also give examples of where they're found. While the German language has this unique method for combining words to tell dates and times more specifically, I was left wondering, do other languages have a term for this? Is it used often? According to Northwestern students Tariq Mufarec and Enrique Montemayor, Spanish has a simpler but not one word term for the day after tomorrow. However, it's not a quintessential part of the language. I would say I would use like the same as like in English when I would say like the day after tomorrow. Both students emphasized that the lack of a simpler term in English was not an annoyance at all. While most languages have popular one-word terms for this phenomenon, their existence seems to be dependent on external factors. These could be cultural or merely reflect the personalities and tendencies of those who speak it. For English speakers, overmorrow hasn't been used consistently in centuries. But language is not always set in place. You can, ever, you can always also make words up, right, in, in the German language. And, uh, um, and then if it starts, you know, if more, more and more people use it, then suddenly it's a, it's a word. Will English ever see a resurgence of overmorrow? Or perhaps a new word altogether? I'll leave that in the hands of the people. But I know I'll be making plans for overmorrow. For WNUR News, I'm Gabe Shumway. For all the concerts you've been meaning to go to this quarter, WNUR has got you covered. Every Friday, Concert Countdown highlights the weekend and following week's upcoming shows happening in the Evanston, Chicago area. We'll also keep you up to date on other major music announcements. Here's Justine Fisher with today's Countdown.
Welcome to Concert Countdown, WNUR News's comprehensive guide to upcoming shows in the Evanston and Chicago area. From Evanston Space to the Aragon Ballroom and more, if you're looking to see some live music this weekend, you've come to the right place. Starting off local, Evanston Space already sold out a show for tomorrow, but there's another one you can catch on Thursday. Charlie Starr is playing a sold-out show at Space this Friday. The Southern rock musician will be joined by Benji Shanks. The show comes ahead of Starr's upcoming acoustic tour, which features two other sold-out Midwest venues. Doors open at 7, and a small number of tickets may be available just before showtime. You can still get tickets to see Evanston-based band Alongside Harold. The female-led rock band is playing at Space on Thursday. Doors open at 7.30 for the all-ages show, and tickets start at just $15. Coming up in Chicago, we've narrowed our selection down to performances from Oliver Tree and Allison Russell. For a Saturday night show, Oliver Tree is playing at Aragon Ballroom. Expect a blend of alternative, electronic, and pop music that you can dance to. The internet-based multimedia artist is sharing his latest album, Alone in a Crowd. Doors open at 8 p.m., and standing room tickets are still available, starting around $60. Next, Allison Russell is performing at Talia Hall in Chicago this Sunday. Best known for Nightflyer, a hit from her 2021 debut album, Russell is embarking on the Returner Tour. Joined by Kishana, the Canadian pop singer will be playing tracks from her latest album. Tickets are all sold out, but a limited number of tickets may be available when doors open. Next, looking ahead to new music in 2024, Kesha is teasing another drop. The iconic pop artist started hinting at new music just a few days ago in a not-so-subtle and very Kesha way. Wearing a cowboy hat, Kesha was seen holding a cardboard sign outside of a 7-Eleven in Los Angeles just a few days ago. The sign simply read, New music coming soon. The message is clear, and all we can hope for is that Chicago is included on Kesha's next tour. That's all we've got for you this week. Tune in next Friday to find out about more concerts happening near you. For WNUR News, I'm Justine Fisher. Chicago winter is upon us. With the first major snowfall of the season happening this morning, Brandon Kondritz and Juliet Allen share the not-so-good-looking forecast and tips to stay warm on this week's Fair Weather Friends. Hi, we're Brandon and Juliet. Each week, we give you a peek into the local and national weather. It may be a new year, but Chicago is still cold as sh From Evanston, Illinois, this is Fair Weather Friends. Who's the weather? On the first full week of classes, Evanston blessed us with fairly mild temperatures in the 30s, which made the morning walk to Tech from South Campus as bearable as it could have been. We had some freezing rain on Tuesday, but the sky cleared up with Thursday bringing us some sun. Don't get comfortable though. As the cold front swept across the Dakotas and into the Midwest last night, a chilly mix of freezing rain, snow, and 40-mile-per-hour winds likely greeted you at your window this morning. We're under a winter weather advisory expected to expire around noon Saturday, but don't be surprised if it gets extended. 
a little less than 20 states are under similar warnings, so most of the East Coast is in the same boat as us. All that ice and slush means things are a little slippery out there, so watch your step, and be especially cautious of highly populated outdoor staircases. Shuffle your feet. And wait, it gets worse. The temperature will drop through Saturday, landing us solidly in the single and negative digits Sunday through Tuesday, with feels like temperatures around negative 20 degrees. The precipitation will clear up later in the weekend, though the clouds will stick around well into next week. We'll get our little bit of relief on Wednesday, though still cold, with the daytime temperature hovering around 20 degrees. Now, I'm from Texas, and much more familiar with the effects of heat stroke, so... Obviously, Brandon, being from Illinois, you must be familiar with the effects of hypothermia. Please share so that audiences know what they may be facing this weekend if they don't exercise caution in the cold. Wow, Juliet, thank you so much for asking. Yes, of course, I am an expert on this. Hypothermia happens when your body loses more heat than it can produce, bringing your body temperature to 95 degrees and below. When your body temp drops, your various organs can't work normally and can lead to your heart and lungs failing. Hmm. Interesting. The National Institute of Health says that the USA has around 25,000 hypothermia deaths per year. That is not easing my anxiety. Shh, it's okay. We have some little known pro tips. Number one, wear a damn coat and mittens and a hat and some thick socks. This is not satirical. This is an actual suggestion. If you've never experienced a Chicago winter before, negative five is much colder than you think it is. On the topic of clothes, cotton clothing doesn't hold your body heat very well. Try wool, silk, and polypropylene. That'll help if you're feeling fancy. Number three, don't swim in the pool or any other outside bodies of water. Sorry, South Beach lovers and ice bath having athletes. Do your best to stay away. If you drive, keep an emergency kit in your car just in case you break down. Make sure to include blankets, hand warmers, and a few extra layers you can put on while waiting on roadside assistance. And number five, Mayo Clinic says that, apparently, you're not supposed to drink alcohol before going to bed when it's cold outside. As Brandon put it so eloquently when we were writing this script, imagine going to sleep thinking you're in a toasty bed and you're actually on a block of ice. It could happen to anyone. Stay safe out there. The long and short of it is, don't be silly. Wear a coat. That's all for this week's edition of Fairweather Friends. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, stay warm and dry. And sober? In Evanston, Illinois, Brandon Condritz. And Juliet Allen, WNUR News. Taking a look into the headlines in Evanston, Chicagoland, and across the nation and globe. The Feinberg School of Medicine hosted a talk yesterday with anthropologist and OBGYN Dr. Ashish Premkumar. The talk is part of Feinberg's Montgomery Lecture Series. Premkumar spoke about the effects that abortion restrictions and media coverage of pregnancies have on fetal intervention and fetal care. Numerous states have increased abortion restrictions following the 2022 Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Former city official Liam Byrd sued Evanston today. He alleges that the city fired him for statements he made supporting the Palestinian people in Gaza. Byrd also claims that the city misrepresented his connection to a controversial draft resolution from the Equity and Empowerment Commission calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The commission withdrew that resolution on December 2nd. According to the Pentagon, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin approved the U.S.'s strike on Yemen-based Houthi rebels yesterday. 
Austin has been hospitalized in the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center since January 1st. He received surgery for prostate cancer on December 22nd. Earlier today, President Joe Biden said Austin had a lapse in judgment when he waited three days to disclose his hospitalization. Biden also said he remains confident in Austin. The U.S. and U.K. militaries launched air and missile strikes yesterday against targets in Yemen controlled by Houthi rebels. The strikes follow recent Houthi attacks on ships passing through the Red Sea. Houthis say the attacks reflect their solidarity with Palestine as Israel continues its strikes on Gaza. Iran supports the Houthi movement and has condemned the strikes. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on X at WNUR News and Instagram at WNUR News 893. You can listen to these and other WNUR news stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Brandon Kondritz, and our reporters are Gabby Shell, Kara Totley, Gabe Sh- and Gabe Shumway. I'm Edward Simon Cruz. Catch our next newscast, Wednesday, January 17th. Now, back to scheduled programming.